Good morning, everybody. Uh, we uh, often hear throughout our lives that we're not doing things very well. Um, as children, we're um, chastised for um, various things. We figure out eventually that there's something wrong with us. And uh, we hear, you know, as time goes on, we get some things right, we get some things wrong, a lot of things wrong. And uh, we're told to straighten up, do the right thing, do what you ought to do. And, uh, and we feel kind of lost. And, and people go in two different directions. You can get kind of self-righteous uh, and really pursue that which is right, which you should. And uh, some people just give up and they become very immoral. And uh, either direction, we still end up as sinners who don't really cut it. And so then, if you become a believer, you open up your Bible or learn from the Bible that God has a law, which you kind of figured out was in there already, and you learn about that law, and that law has a lot of rules in it, a lot of commands. And then, oh, well, I'm a Christian now, right? So I'm going to set to work on these commands. And I figure, well, now that I'm a Christian, I should be able to do them. And you figure out you're not so good at those either. And now God is in your face telling you to straighten up and do the right thing, do what you ought to do. So um, what happens to us is, uh, or what should happen, I should say, is that we have to discover. Uh, we have to discover why the law. You know, why does God give us laws? And then find out how to fulfill that law. And there's a way to do that. And it's not in you, and that's the good news, but it's also uh, become somewhat tricky in terms of the fact that um, we have to really have nailed down how that law is fulfilled. And that's what we're going to look at today. The law will not make you holy. You say, well, well, I can't keep it, you know, anyway, so yeah, all right, so why have it? If the law can't make us holy, why have it? But here's one key, and we'll look at a bit. When you enter into the law, you and I, we're already sinners. Right? Born into this world, and we're born, as soon as we exist, we take our first breath, we're under God's law. And yet, we've already started as sinners. So before we even tried, even we knew there was such a thing as a law, we were already sinners. You see... When you start as a sinner, the law then would have to make you righteous. But nobody ever entered into the law righteous, except for one man, because he was born of a virgin. He starts righteous, we don't. So how could the law make us righteous? Well, it can't. So why the law, and how do we actually fulfill all of this? And uh, that's what today's about. Let's pray first. We'll sing some songs. Uh, for those of you who don't know, there was a bit of a snowstorm that we got here in Oregon. So we, uh, uh, but we who braved it to church get extra credit in heaven for this morning. A little extra credit because we braved the roads, and uh, we are here. And uh, hopefully, and I hope you all, if you're listening at home and and can listen to this later, I hope you enjoy it. Let's. Uh, to understand God's word, again, we have to be humble and ready, ready to learn, ready to hear, ready to listen, 
and to be completely open-minded to what God has as a message for us. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace that you provide for us through your spirit. Your spirit indwells everyone in this age. You have made it this way through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit is for us, Father, because you baptized your son with the sins of the whole world. That's our sins, all of us, and every sin we've ever committed and will commit, he has been judged for. He has taken our place as the one true sacrifice to redeem and atone for us so that we can stand before you, not guilty, but confirmed holy. Not because of anything we've done, but as a gift. A gift from the Son who gave himself for us all. We thank you so much, Father, for such an amazing gift. May we see... Those in your family here, those who all over who are your children, see the value of the freedom that comes with that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All rise, please. Be thou my
In the rain. 
All right, we're going to start in Isaiah 41. <clears throat> Isaiah 41. On several occasions in his word, God presents a courtroom case. Um, and this makes sense. Now, um, in this, uh, God is challenging uh, his readers uh, to look at the evidence. Right? Faith, is, faith is a word that actually is better uh, understood as the word trust because it's not blind. Right? Our faith in God isn't blind. We have the Gospels. We have the Word. We have things to believe that uh, we have the acts of God, and, and, and so on. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the Word, uh, when you, the Word of God, when you uh, seek it out, it has amazing treasures in it. You think, well, no man could have ever written this. And uh, that's, you know, that's, it's not blind faith. It's trust in something or someone, really, that you understand. And when it, what God does here, and he does it in chapter 41 of Isaiah, is he presents a courtroom case. So look at uh, 41.1, the fourth line there. He says, let us come together for judgment. In other words, why don't you and I come together for a court case? And then God presents himself first. And what kind of evidence would God present of himself that would show himself? You know, what, what do you think if you were sitting in the, the, the room, you were in one of the seats in the back, and you're watching this courtroom case go on, and then God announces, first, I'm going to present who I am. And then he comes out. What is he going to show you? Well, he shows some things here in Isaiah 41, and they're wonderful things. They're things about his power, about his ability, about his wisdom. Um, he's infinite. You know, and you can't argue with that. God says, I created everything. Look at the stars of the heavens. Look at the earth, everything around you. With the snap of my fingers, I created it. Who do you think I am? Very, very powerful. Very wise. Uh, and then God presents the nations. He calls forth the nations. He says, now, all right, that's my presentation. Next presentation is all the nations. So in March, you know, all the, the Egyptians, Babylonians, the Romans, the Greeks, the Americans, all through history, here they come. And uh, what would we expect to see? Now, what God's going to present them, <coughs> not like when, you know, when Satan tempted Jesus and he presented to him all the kingdoms in their glory. If you look at a kingdom from far away, like uh, even uh, any Kingdom. I saw, uh, you know how when you open up your computer and they, uh, Microsoft throws up a picture and they're like, do you like this? I'm like, I don't, why? I, you know, I don't know why they do that. But it was a picture of Singapore, downtown Singapore, my last one. And I'm like, wow. Like it, you look at it and say, I would love to go there. But from a distance, this is from some helicopter, right? Miles in the air, or not miles, a few hundred feet in the air. Uh, <coughs> It looks beautiful. What if you started walking around in the streets? What if you ended up in the slums? I mean, the closer you get, the worse it looks. 
You'd be like, why did I even come here? Um, and so this is, you know, what God is going to present in his courtroom. When he presents the nations, he presents their character. And you can't lie in God's court. Right? You can't present yourself as and lie. So the nations come forward, and uh, what are they? And all we have to do is look at history. How has mankind lived up to the label, the truth, made in God's image? Right? Stamped on every person, made in God's image. Not well. And here, just like in many other, uh, several of the other court cases God presents, he shows them as idol makers and idol worshipers. And he makes fun of their idols. They fall over. They don't talk. They don't see. They don't do anything. But then God announces that there's one nation. Amongst all of these nations, there's one that is unlike all the others. And now as we're sitting in the courtroom, we're like, whoa, all right. So there's one of these nations is not like the others. And God says, yeah, they're not like the others because I elected them. I called them. I gave them promises. I gave them covenants. I blessed them. The promises I gave them of protection. All they had to do was follow me, follow my... I didn't ask them to be sinless. I just asked them to do their best, really, to do what I asked them to. And they would be blessed, a blessed nation. Ah, they're mine. And we think, wow, and that's the majority of this text. Uh, he says, uh, where, where should I start with that? Look at verse 10, <clears throat> uh, verse 8, <clears throat> 41.8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called forth its remotest parts, <clears throat> from its remotest parts, and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Wow. So this, out of all the nations, this nation has got to be just amazing. But they're not. <clears throat> God calls forth the evidence of who they are. Imagine, in comes, well, who, he mentioned it. I called you from Abraham. In comes Abraham. He said, well, you know, if you're sitting in the courtroom, here comes Abraham, word showed who he is. He said, well, he's not bad. God called him to go somewhere. He went. He seems like he's got faith. But then, no, actually, as we're looking at him, he doesn't. He fails. He starts whining to God that he doesn't have any children. God's like, well, look at the stars of the heaven. Your descendants will be that many. Abraham's like, yeah, I don't know. Abraham doesn't look faithful at all. Then he lies about Sarah being his sister. Well, she was. <laughs> his half-sister. He used that one twice. Then comes Isaac, walks into the courtroom. Said, well, he's not too bad. Same thing. Here comes Jacob. Actually, from the beginning, we're like, wow. Can we skip over him quickly? Moses. Wow, Moses looks awesome. But then, no good. Fails. Badly. He's a murderer, actually. Uh, and then comes Saul, the first king. Oh, like, 
terrible than David. David. David looks, yeah, no good. No good. On and on and on it goes. All of those people, we find their names in Matthew right at the front, right at the beginning. They're the descendants of the one to come. So God presents them all. God calls forth the elect angel, uh, the elect nation. None are righteous, not even one. And then that's it, right? It's not, you know, God can't sin, so we can't, sitting in the courtroom, we can't look at God and say, wow, God's a failure. He's never a failure. But his experiment with mankind, this courtroom scene in chapter 41, like we get to, we get to the end of it and we find that even in Israel, look at verse 27. Formerly I said to Zion, behold, here they are, and to Jerusalem I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, there is no one. There is no counselor among them who, if I ask, can give an answer. Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. There actually, there's nobody there who speaks the truth. And this is Zion, Zion and Jerusalem, Israel. They're idol worshipers too, just like the rest of them. God's experiment with mankind has failed. So you can imagine a, a hush over the courtroom and be like, wow. God creates, it's not like God, nobody asked him to do this. He creates the earth. He creates man. And in Genesis 1, I will make man, or we will make man in our image, male and female, we will make them in our image, and they will rule over this earth. And they've turned to nothing. And the words you use here, wind and emptiness, sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes. And right dead on, those words are. And is there any hope for humanity? And it's beautiful because the courtroom isn't closed. It seems like it's over. But then God bellows, behold, behold. And we're we're like, wow, I I thought this was over. Behold, and you're at 42.1. Look at 42.1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. There's that word justice again. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands, meaning all nations, will wait expectantly for his law. His law. There's someone here who is one in whom God says, my soul delights. Excellent. Who is he? And actually, Isaiah doesn't tell us. This is how revelation is. Much revelation in the scripture is progressive. Is a servant. Well, who is he? Is he Judah? Is he Israel? Well, you know, we just read about Israel in the courtroom case. And they didn't live up to any. They failed miserably. And yet, here comes this servant. And when he comes into the world, 
What's the first thing he does? Now, he's born into the world. Now, of course, we know who this is. This is Jesus. And for us, the courtroom case is still going on, but we, all, we already know the final verdict. Right? God wins. When Christ walked out of that tomb, God won. We didn't expect anything else. Well, maybe we did, but regardless of what we expected, the reality is of the truth is that he's resurrected. So he comes, he's born of a virgin. That's very important because he goes into the Mosaic law or God's law uh, completely righteous. He's perfect. So, and then he's going to keep it. We'll see that. But go to now Matthew chapter 3. This is our next section in Matthew, chapter 3, verse 13. So this is the beginning of his ministry. This is when he presents himself to Israel. Right? Presents himself to the world, really. His birth was in secret, but this is public. Verse 13, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus, answering to him, permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Lighting means he just coming on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Where have we heard that? Well, we just read it. It's Isaiah 42, verse 1. And actually, there's other passages that are kind of mixed up in here, too. Passages about Christ as king. Passages also about someone else who loved their son so much, but yet God told them to sacrifice them. They're all here, wrapped up in this. But for our purposes today, this is him (coughs) in the courtroom where, behold, my son, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Uh, in whom my soul delights. His first act. So this is the one. This is the one. And his first act is to get baptized by a sinner. John is, and and John identifies himself as one who's not even worthy to hold this man's sandals in his hand. And he's baptized by him. John, even John himself protests says, uh, you should baptize me. I shouldn't be. What are you doing here? I shouldn't baptize you. This baptism of John is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus doesn't have any sins, nor does he need to repent. So why be water baptized by John? But then he answers the question. He says, permitted at this time, in verse 15, for in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So now what we have to do, and that's what's here, this is the idea of this passage, that Jesus gets baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. So what does this phrase mean, to fulfill all righteousness? And uh, for you and I, actually for all things, but 
This is the most wonderful thing. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ right now, you have done this. You didn't do anything but believe in him, but you have fulfilled all righteousness. You have. And in this um, finished work of Christ on our behalf, we need to see ourselves and we need to explore our whole lives how this translates into a heart, soul, mind that is joyful, confident, um, excited, and even when brokenhearted, does never lose hope. How does that translate into a heart in me that is just like Christ? A heart that loves the unlovely, as well as those that I find lovely. A heart that gives, is gracious. A heart that is faithful, a faithful friend. One that is true. Lies don't even cross my mind. One who is joyous. And one who always has hope. One who can be relied upon and leaned upon. One who serves others. And finds joy in it. One who has an abundant life. And that is the key. So many have wondered, and there's tons of material written on this, why in the world did Jesus get baptized by John? Why does he get water baptized? Well, first, and we're going to look at some of those this coming week. We can't do them all. Plus, it'd, it'd, it'd be uh, boring. Because, <laughs> you know, people go into all kinds of theories. And, you know, if the Bible doesn't say it, 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 it's inter- it can't, might be interesting. If it's not interesting to you, you can leave it, believe me, if the Bible doesn't uh, address the issue directly. Uh, but what is addressed is this. The answer by Christ is that it's to fulfill all righteousness. Now, Jesus on purpose comes to get baptized, does he not? It says in the opening of this line that he walked 70 miles to get baptized. Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan. From Galilee to where roughly we think John is, it's a 70-mile trek. And Jesus would have waited for this. You know, this is his time. This is the timing upon which he must go to John. You can imagine him in in Galilee or, or in Nazareth waiting for this time. He would have heard about John and he would have known when the timing was. It was time to leave home and go to the Jordan and start his ministry. He didn't know exactly when that would be. So he waits for it. That's a great lesson in that, by the way. John also has to wait for a sign. John doesn't know when Jesus is coming. So John is baptizing for, you know, who knows how long, months and months. He doesn't know when Jesus is coming. And then he arrives. So this is done by God on purpose, so there's a definite purpose to it. And... Jesus says, again, permitted at this time. Well, first off, to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus is going to submit to every ordinance of the Father. One of the ordinances here is to be baptized by John. This is is a part of God's will for his life. But we know that Jesus is going to submit to the will of the Father in all things. And that is 
uh, what ba- that's one of the aspects that baptism, on a very broad scale, if we paint with a broad brush, baptism in water is a sign that Jesus is going to obey all things that the Father tells him to obey. But one of the things that the Father is going to tell him to do is to take upon himself the sins of the world. And is he okay with that? Well, here's another servant song. This is the fourth one. This is Behold My Servant. This is this chapter, famous chapter in Isaiah 53. says, My servant will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities, as he will bear their iniquities. Uh, John said this at the Jordan, uh, but recorded by the Gospel of John, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Sin of the world. And in Isaiah 53, where this last quote was, He will bear their iniquities. In Isaiah 53.7, Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. The Lamb of God is going to take away the sins of the world. And as time goes on, we find out that this baptism, this immersion and then coming out, is just like the death, burial into the tomb, and then the resurrection, which we saw all last week in the baptism of the Spirit. That's what we go through when we believed in him. We get buried with him, we, get, we die with him or crucified with him, we're buried with him, we're resurrected with him. Marvelous truth. And yet, here comes Christ in this water baptism to fulfill all righteousness. So, uh, again, on a broad paintbrush, the baptism of water represents the fact that he's going to submit to everything the Father tells him to do. How many people have done that? Well, we could go back to our court case in Isaiah 41 and ask. Nobody. Not a one. The greatest of us didn't do it. He does. But all the people in this book, besides Christ, entered into the law of God as a failed sinner. They were born in Adam, born fallen. So in other words, I'd have to go, if you could imagine me walking into, all right, I'm here, I'm here to obey the law. Well, you already started out unrighteous. Okay. So if I follow the law, I become righteous? Do you? Just because, and by the way, I can't keep the law that's true. But even if I could, let's just say by some miracle, well, let's just say I put myself in a coma. <laughs> I did nothing. Do I become righteous? Does the law make me righteous if I'm born unrighteous? No. It was never designed for that. Nor could it. It just can't. It can't. So Jesus comes into the law born But now he's the only one, born of a virgin. So he comes into the law, holy, righteous. So the only way he can not fulfill the law concerning himself is if he breaks it. But he doesn't. He's the one sinless man. So he goes into the law righteous, he comes out of the law righteous. And that's the one aspect. So of the many things... That water baptism of Jesus Christ by John could mean, because if you remember, baptism means identification. He identifies himself with Israel. He identifies himself with John. We'll look at a few of these this week. 
See, John had this grand ministry and message, and when Jesus comes to him to get baptized by John, he authenticates John. That's one of the things that is here. I need to be baptized by you. Christ says, no, let's do this. We'll do it this way and fulfill all righteousness. I'm confirming you, John, that you are my forerunner. You baptize me. He identifies himself with sinners because it's all the ones who were baptized were baptized because of their sins. And so all of that is there. But what I want to focus on today, which I think is the most important part of it, is that Jesus fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. Mosaic law, what we've kind of been talking about. God's law over all mankind. Yes, he gave it to Israel, but it's truly over all mankind. God would not say, well, for the Gentiles, adultery and lying and is all fine. You know, it's just a, just a sin. You know, the Ten Commandments is just a sin for Israel. No, the Ten Commandments are a sin for all mankind, as, as are all aspects of the law that are moral or ethical. <clears throat> so the first part, he, two ways. The first part is he keeps the law himself. And born of a virgin, like I just said, that means that he is uh, qualified here. He's sinless, and but he's also born of a virgin. So he's righteous. So in other words, you could say, I am the one person who fulfilled the law. The requirement of the law is righteousness. I came in righteous. I left righteous. But the other aspect is the sinners, because in the law is instruction on how to, how to atone for sin. And my God Almighty, great God Almighty, that the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, five books, and it's a chiasm. So the middle book is Leviticus. And in the middle of Leviticus is Leviticus 16, which is the Day of Atonement. Right in the middle of the whole law, if you were to you know, throw a dart at it and hit the bullseye, the bullseye is the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is the time in which the high priest, only once a year, went into the Holy of Holies with the blood and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. And he did that for the sins of the whole world. Uh, sorry, for Israel. All Israel's sins were atoned for on that day. By that blood, in the Holy of Holies, on the mercy seat. And lo and behold, when Jesus is resurrected, on the mercy seat, there's two angels on either side. And when Jesus is resurrected, who, when Mary comes and sees what? In the tomb. Two angels on either side of his tomb or where he laid he is the mercy seat. It's incredible how all of this throughout the scripture is completely intertwined. And so the middle of the Torah is that if someone is going to be atoned for sin, there has to be a blood sacrifice. And Jesus is the only one to do that. But what about the blood what about the blood of the bulls and stuff? I mean, couldn't we just all sacrifice an animal for ourselves? But no. And we'll see why. 
Jesus atones for us by offering himself. He is the only one. Because an animal can in no way be a mediator for a human. Not to mention sinlessness or morality or ethicalness uh, doesn't enter into the equation for an animal. Animals are not held to that. They don't have a conscience by which they could make ethical decisions. So an animal cannot in any way enter into the realm of justice, right? But a man can. A man who has a conscience and a morality and can make choices. Now, if he's just a man, even if he is sinless, there is no mediation between us and God because a priest has to mediate between the two parties. And so we have an issue there. That's also in the law. The mediator, the priest, has to be a mediator between two parties. And if he's going to be a mediator between God and man, now the priest not only has to be sinless and willing, but he has to be God and man. And, you know, before the New Testament, if you and I lived in Old Testament days, we'd be like, well, that's just crazy. How in the world does anybody do that? Nobody does that. And it became, it, we see it in the Gospels that even when Jesus told the disciples who he was and what he was going to go through, they were like, that's crazy. Messiahs don't do that. See, this suffering servant, this servant that we see in Isaiah 42 to Israel at the time Jesus came made no sense to them. Even though they read of it, it made no sense to them. They did not see in it a king, Messiah, son of God, who would suffer. They say, well, we, you know, Israel suffers or people suffer, but not the Messiah. And what they failed to see, we'll see this this week, is that he had to be our substitute. And that's that second part. He saved sinners by the only way possible, which is the sacrifice. So go to Romans 8, 1. The results of this to us is the Lord fulfilling all righteousness. Uh, there's a few passages we could turn to here, but we're going to focus uh, on this one in Romans 8.1. Jesus is fulfilling of all righteousness by this baptism that John gives him into the water, out of the water, which we come to see represents his death, burial, and resurrection makes Romans 8 a reality for you. This has got to be my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Not that that carries any weight, but it's an amazing chapter. And in this chapter, we are set forth as those who are sons and heirs and who are led by the Spirit, who are made to be free, made to be like God, separated, free from this world, and free from the nature of sin that's in this body. It's all here in Romans 8. And we have the Spirit living in here so that we can do all this in a new life. Not the old, not a remodeled or rehabbed old life, but a brand new life. How many Christians are living in their brand new life? How many Christians kind of know something about a brand new life while they trudge along in their old life. They have no freedom. They have no, and when you have freedom, you have contentment, joy, hope, all of it. 
But there's a lot that don't. And it's because they don't understand this. So Romans 8.1. There is now, there is, sorry, therefore, therefore, we always, what's the therefore, therefore? Uh, Romans 3.21 all the way to this point, really. But Romans 5, 6, and 7. And in Romans 7, Paul says, you know, this, it's famous, what I do, I, I don't do what I'm supposed to be doing. I do what I'm not supposed to be doing. In my mind, I want to keep the law of God, but in my flesh, I don't. And I'm a 724, you can read it, wretched man that I am. I am a wretched, wretched man. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's not me. And because of what he's done, therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's every believer. No condemnation. Not some. None. You'll get it from people, but not from God. For the law of the Spirit of life, and that's the law of the new life in Christ Jesus. By the way, it's not a set of laws. It's a way of life. Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's His way. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Mosaic law. The law of sin and death is the Mosaic law. Notice how Paul describes it. Who was a Pharisee? He knew the law in and out. Sin and death. I enter into the law unrighteous. What does the law say of me? You're a bum. (laughs) You're unrighteous. You're a loser. Yes. I try. I say, oh, hold on, law. I'm going to try and keep you. I'm going to do it as hard as I can. And I try it. And what does the law say of me? You're a bigger bum than you were when you started. You stink at this. You stink at life. Okay. So what does it mean for me? You might as well be dead. Truly. That's what God calls it. Sin is death. Death is sin. Back and forth. There was not supposed to be any sin. In, uh, sorry, there wasn't supposed to be sin, true. But there wasn't supposed to be any death in the human race either. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden forever. They're not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're not supposed to die. That was the only thing God said when you will die if you eat of that tree. That's it. You're not supposed to eat of that tree. So you live forever. Death is an invasion of the human race. Even physical death. So, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. I'm free from it. Correct. So, what Christians are going to do, and you know, I've done it. Say, well, if I'm free from the law, then I can do anything I want. Right? I mean, I, I can just sin. I can do whatever I want. Any immoral thing, it doesn't matter. And... uh do you suffer the con- did you okay you thought you could do that and you went ahead and did it did you suffer the consequences of sin you say yeah i ruined my life as a believer right even though you're free from the law and you ventured down the pathway of some immoral way did you destroy your life your body your mind your relationships did it all fall apart every single person who has gone that way can say yeah it ruined it 
the laws don't go away just because we've graduated from them. I'll get to that. <clears throat> now, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. An offering for sin. See, that's an offering, like an animal offering in the Old Testament. He's an offering, a blood offering. He condemned sin in the flesh, not in our flesh, in Christ's flesh. Sin was condemned because he was judged for it. So that the requirement of the law, which we'll see what that word requirement means. It means righteousness. The requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And I tell you, this requirement, this righteous requirement, is exactly what Jesus says to John when he starts his ministry. I, you should baptize me, John says, and Jesus says, no, well, let's permit it at this time, let's permit it now, because this will fulfill all righteousness. The, ba- the water baptism of Jesus does not fulfill the law. It's what that water baptism represented. He would, at the end of his life, die be buried, and be raised again. He would be judged for the world, for the sins of the world. So, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, all of us in flesh entered into the law unrighteous, and none of us could keep it. The law just made us more and more unrighteous. God did by sending his son as an offering for sin. And so, as an offering for sin, Jesus Christ himself becomes This blood sacrifice, that's not up there, let me go back to this. He becomes that second part. He saves sinners by his blood sacrifice. And that is a fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. That is a fulfillment of the Old Testament law that says there's only one way to atone for sinners. And that under the law of God is a blood sacrifice. A life must be given. But the life of an animal, well, you know, it's a lot easier if it's the life of an animal, isn't it? I mean, come on. We kill cows and bulls and lambs all the time. Just go to the supermarket, right? There they are. The fruits of dead animal. God sent his son to do what the law could not. And notice... In Hebrews 10, 6, and 7, this comes from the mouth of the Lord himself, from Jesus' mouth. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. And he concludes that with, To do your will, O God. And see that word, no pleasure. Oh, come on. Where'd my pen go? This word. Uh-oh. Oh, man. There it is. Nope. Where the hell did I? I don't want that. I have uh, been unable here. There. Highlighter. That's not bad. I have taken no pleasure 
So that word, that's the very same word in the negative that God said from heaven after Jesus came out of the water from John's baptism. This is my beloved son in whom whom I take pleasure, in whom I'm well pleased. In animal sacrifices, I have taken no pleasure. This is my son in whom I've taken pleasure. And so he comes. All this Old Testament animal sacrifice, all pointing to this one who was promised to us after the whole world failed, even God's elect nation Israel. And here he comes. And he says, right at the start of his ministry, I am willing to do all the will of the Father, and part of that will is to become a sacrifice of my own very life to save all those who have sinned according to God's law. And I will do it. It's astounding. And because of this, you have new life, and so do I. And just in those few minutes of hearing, that's, it's a story, right? It's a drama. And after you've heard that, could anybody possibly say, well, you know, I, I did have something to do with my salvation. I did have some contribution. You know, God saved me because I had this or that or something to offer him. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. I'm a filthy, perverted, terrible, ignorant, stupid sinner. And I have no business being in the same room with God. And yet, because of this one, because of this one, I'm his and he's mine. He prayed the night before he died. Father, may they be one with us as we are with one another. As I am one with you, Father, I want them to be one with us. John 17, 21 through 23. It's incredible. And you know, God did this on purpose. You can't imagine that God is, you know, he's omniscient. Uh, you can't, he is. I'd say you can imagine. Well, actually you cannot imagine that. But God is omniscient and everything that he purposes He does. He purposes. So when man falls in the garden and all of this goes down and all of this has to happen and this sacrifice of Christ to save us, this is all designed. It doesn't mean he created sin. But nothing happens that is outside of his handiwork. Then he's not God if it is. It presents a very big conundrum for our little finite brains. But that gets back to what I just said a minute ago. You and I are dumb. It's not for us to figure out all the ins and outs of this. But what we do know is God says that I purpose all things and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God has purposed it so that man would lose, by his own free will, lose his standing with God. And then God would present this court case and say, do you want to walk with me? Do you want to restore your relationship with me and enjoy me and be with me forever? And I mean now. Not waiting for eternity. Now, starting now in this life, do you want to walk with me today? Be with me today. Your heart is my heart. My heart is your heart. Can you imagine such a life? I kind of can. It's amazing to me how, you know, I, I grab hold of truths like this and they blow me away and, I, and then I let go of them. <laughs> 
you know, not not that I'm a standard or anything, but to to hold on to this truth, and then you you find out, you know, at some point during the day that you're either mad at someone or angry or cranky over something or something didn't go your way, you know, didn't work out the way you wanted it to, you didn't get what you wanted, and in light of this, getting some little thing on earth that you wanted or getting some person to do what you wanted them to do is just like nothing. It doesn't even show up on the radar. It has nothing to do with this. This is so far above all things that when I'm hooked into this in my heart, that everything on earth, I could say, God gives, God takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, because this is life. How earth works out for me has nothing to do with it. In fact, God is going to work out earth for you so that you can see this. He's helping you. So, uh, as you can see here, we've been to Isaiah 41-42, Matthew 3, Romans 8, Hebrews 10, and there's far more. And what, what, what happens for us, if we're willing, is we look as we're studying and learning in here, that there's like little rabbit tracks. And you follow them. And as you follow them, sometimes you don't know where it's going. Sometimes you don't even understand them. But as you follow them, they run into other tracks, and then those run into other tracks, and then you find out some truths that are treasures that are in this word. And I asked myself, and asked my wife for some insight, why doesn't God just state it plainly? Which he does, but why so much... Oh, why so much text? Why do I have to go to Isaiah and Hebrews and Romans and the Gospels to kind of tie these things together and go, wow, look at that, how it all comes together. And Chris had amazing insight into this. She said, you know, it's like when Christ started talking in the parable. Right? He presented himself plainly, and then Israel said, no, we don't want you. And Jesus said, all right, you know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to talk to you in parables. And it's not that you can't figure out the parables. It's that if you want to figure out the parables, you have to try. You've got to ask questions. We find in the Gospels that the disciples are asking him questions about, what did you mean by that? In other words, you have to want to know it. And I think that, that is the answer. God leaves little rabbit tracks all throughout his scripture so that those who want to see will see. And those who say, you know what, I don't, I don't care about this. The world's good enough for me. They don't see. Here's uh, this requirement now. If you go back to verse 4. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now that last part, who do not walk according to the flesh are all those walking according to the Spirit of those who have been baptized by the Spirit. This is, this in no way, is the whole context of this chapter does not at all indicate that it's those who are the good Christians who fulfill the requirement of the law. How in the world could we fulfill the requirement of the law if we come into this world unrighteous and we can't keep the law? We can't. It's Jesus who fulfills it for us. And this word requirement, this Greek word, 
I know I'm at end here, so I uh, I want to hit you with Greek near that. This should be at the beginning of the message when when brains are fresh. But anyway, the dekaioma means an ordinance, a righteous action, or justification. And so when this says in verse 4, that the, or so that, the righteousness of the law may be fulfilled in us. Jesus said, same word fulfilled as when Jesus said to John, let it happen now so that we can fulfill all righteousness. There it is. What righteousness is Jesus going to fulfill? He's going to do it for us. So go back to Romans 5, 16. This is where we end. Romans 5.16, this very word, dikaioma, is used here twice. Romans 5.16, it's used in verse 16 and verse 18. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, who is Adam. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. Adam sinned and we all sinned. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, Resulting in justification. See that word, justification? That's dikaioma. The free gift arose from many transgressions. Does that make any sense? Actually, no. But all of our sins, from all of our sins, arose the one who was going to atone for them. And it resulted in what? Dikaioma, the requirement of the law. For Verse 17, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, through one transgression, Adam's sin, there resulted condemnation to all men. None of us escaped it. Born sinners. Even so, one act of righteousness. See that word? Those three words. Act of righteousness. That's dekaioma. There resulted Justification of life to all men. Dikaioma is used here of the act of Jesus that saved us, as well as the result of that act, which is our justification. So in Romans 8, 4, he says that the requirement, he, he was an offering for sin, he condemned sin, so that the requirement, the dikaioma, of the law might be fulfilled in us, and it was, by his act and the result of that act, which is, we're made righteous. <clears throat> so now, and this uh, is, is revealed right there in Isaiah as well, that when this servant does what he does, this behold my servant, the same, the voice that came from heaven after he came out of the water. And this servant suffers. In Isaiah 42, 49, 51, 53, there's four of them, that he suffers greatly. Isaiah 53 is the one where he suffers the most. But there's this new group of people that show up in these later chapters. And they're the elected ones. They're, they're ones who are made righteous by the servant. They show up on the pages. They're like, who are these people? And we find out later on that they're all those who are in Christ Jesus, Old Testament and New. 
And so, in God's court case, he presents himself, and we say, bravo, creator of heavens and the earth, one who knows all things, one who could never sin, bravo. Then he presents the nations, and we go, oh, that's terrible. Then God says, here's my elect nation, and we go, oh, let's see this one, and they're terrible. And then comes my servant. Behold my servant. And so if it ended there, we could say, well, out of all of God's experiment with the human race, everything failed except this one guy, this servant, in whom I'm well pleased. But then the, you know, the court case doesn't end. The courtroom doesn't close. As time goes on, we find out that there's a whole other group of people And these are the people that God is making out of that servant. Think about it. There's no amount of water baptizing or repenting that could actually do this for you. Through Christ and Him alone on the cross through His death, burial, and resurrection. He glorified the Father to the maximum. He fulfilled all righteousness. Everything failed but Him and all who believe upon Him are made righteous. The righteous requirement of the law is made for you. You're made righteous and therefore you've graduated from the law. When you graduate from the law, right? I'm no longer under it, I say. So people will say, well, I can do whatever I want, right? So think of this. When I... Say I, I had a math teacher in uh, first grade. I'm sure you did. Maybe, maybe you just had one teacher. Let's say middle school, right? The first time you learned whatever, basic math. And you learned, and you learned from that math teacher. The whole time that teacher was your teacher, he or she had authority over you. The authority was that he could give tests, he could give quizzes, he could give homework, and he gave you a grade. Uh, you were under his authority. But then when you fulfilled the course and it was over, you graduated from that. Now, are you still under the authority of that teacher? I mean, right now, could your third grade teacher show up in your life and say, Deb, sit down. Do your homework. What are you doing chewing gum? Whatever. Uh, No. I'd be like, what? Right? You don't have authority over me. Neither does the law. We graduated from it by Christ. But now, did you, when you graduated from your math class, did you say to your math teacher, you know what, from now on in my life, two and two is five? Because I hate your guts. I had to put up with you all year. From now on, division is whatever I want it to be. Multiplication, I don't care about your stupid multiplication tables. I'm going to do two times two is ten. And that's how I'm going to live my life, because I'm no longer under your authority. How's your life going to go? Balance your checkbook? (laughs) Do anything. Take any basic knowledge. Once you graduated from it, you say, you know what? No more. I'm no longer going to adhere to the definitions of English words. I'm going to make them mean whatever I want, which is funny, because that's exactly what's happening in our culture. 
How do things progress? How do people get along when there's no definition of words and such? You can't. You can't live. So when you graduated from the law, because Christ graduated you by becoming your righteousness and making you righteous, we don't look back at the law and say, well, now I'm going to commit adultery because I'm no longer under the law. Now I'm going to sin with reckless abandon like the Corinthians. Why not? I'm no longer under the law. How's your life going to go? It's like living life without knowing how to do math or speak or think. It's going to fall apart. The morals and ethics of the law still are ours. But justification and righteousness now is no longer there for us. Where it is is with our Savior. We've graduated from that. And now, you know, think of the freedom that that means. The freedom not to do what I want, but the freedom to live like Him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what we'll say every day. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and the majesty, Father, of what you've provided for us through Christ our Lord. Thank you for the wonder of it all, the magnificence of what Christ has done. When he came to be baptized, he went into the water and came out of the water as a a public representation of submitting to your will the ultimate of which is obedience unto death, even death on a cross. He did that for us. May we, Father, live that freedom that you have given us through those truths. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah, I was wondering about an offering. Just, uh, yeah. Just stand there until they give you something, kid. That's right. <laughs> Glare at them. Go around twice. <laughs> Go around twice. I love it. That's what they did at the Catholic, bless the sacrament church. They always went around twice. Let's pray for our offering, and, and then uh, I'll, uh, I'll do the altar call, Alan, and, and then we'll close. Well, thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give. As your believer priests, we give to you in, in thankfulness for... Uh, what you've done for us, but you know, in worship of you. We ask, Father, that you would bless this offering. I also lift up, Father, anyone listening who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior. If you're listening to me and you haven't believed in Christ, there is only one way of salvation, and it is Him and Him alone. No one can make themselves righteous. No one can live up to the standard that God, who is holy, requires except for Jesus Christ. He is the only one. And out of, from his own choice, by his own free will, he died for you. He knows who you are. He knows what your problems are. He knows what your sins are. He knows what's dragging you down. He knows what's making you miserable. He, also, he knows everything about you. And he wants you to live with him forever. That's why he died for you. So if you believe in Christ as your Savior, you will be saved. We could do nothing to earn this. He earned it. But we have to put our faith in Him. The Holy Spirit will show you the way. Believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and you will be saved. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
That is hilarious. I like Max Keith. That officially made you the middleman. No comment. All right. Uh, that's good. You're, uh, in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for coming, everybody. You're dismissed.